You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome again to BJSM Podcasts. I'm Jill Cook, and we're talking about tendons again. This is because the next International Scientific Tendinopathy Symposium has been scheduled for September 5 and 6 in 2014 in Oxford in the UK. This exciting event follows on from two previous and successful conferences in Vancouver in 2012 and Umeå in 2010. The consensus paper from the Vancouver conference is open access in the June 2013 edition of BJSM. I'm here with Mark Thompson, a biomedical engineer from Oxford University, who leads the Oxford Mechanobiology Group and, amongst other things, is working with Professor Andy Carr, who has a large number of publications, particularly on the rotator cuff tendon. Welcome, Mark. The mechanics of tendon and tendinopathy appear to be quite complex, and there was a little about mechanics in the ITSC consensus document. In what tendons do you think mechanics contribute most to the clinical perspectives of tendinopathy? Thanks very much for your welcome, Jill. I'm really delighted to join you and to have the chance to join the debate and put the mechanics perspective. Um, I'll try and answer your question in, in three parts, if I may. Firstly, I would agree that the mechanical aspects of tendons and tendinopathy are highly complicated. Um, from a, a clinical perspective, however, if I can um, try and say something about that as an engineer, um, the, the restoration of a proper mechanical function of the tendon seems to be a key aim alongside removing the pain in much the same way as you would aim to repair a broken cable on a suspension bridge. Likely the bridge hasn't fallen down due to the loss of one cable, but its, its integrity is impaired. So tendons, like you say, are, are com complicated. They're really, they, they enable the, the, the energy-efficient and highly coordinated locomotion of an organism, and they're really specialized mechanical structures and sensory organs, of course, also carrying really high mechanical loads. And, and keeping the locomotor system healthy with all this energy efficiency and neural feedback and the straightforward kind of brute force load bearing that this entails, you need to keep the tendon as a mechanically functioning tissue. And tendinopathic tendon has, has an impaired maintenance of the tissue so that the function is compromised. Um, so I would agree with you um, that, that um, there's a little about mechanics in the ISDS consensus document. Um, but of course, it's, uh, mechanics have, a, as, as the document says, uh, mechanics have a really key role in the anatomy and the biological background of tendons, um, and, and of course also in the, in the pain and the pathogenesis of, 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 of um, tendinopathy. Um, so the difficult part, which is the third part of the answer, is that the sort of mechanical interventions, in quotes, that we can possibly introduce for patients, things like rest and rehab and surgery, are, are really blunt. They're quite hard to quantify and to control and to dose. But what we do know from, from basic science from in vitro and in vivo work is that the dividing line between the mechanical stimuli that have a really positive anabolic effect and those that have a negative effect is a very fine one. Um, and, and so even uh, it's even harder to control because um, the, the sort of imaging modalities that are available in the clinic are pretty much insensitive to the mechanical function of tendons. So it's really difficult to, to, to try and use that in a, in a meaningful way in the clinic. So I think the first way that we're going to be able to use the sort of basic science that's coming from mechanobiology is likely to come through a, a pharmaceutical map manipulation of, of the mechanisms for anabolic response to mechanical stimuli, just because the, the difficulties with kind of controlling mechanical interventions are so large. What do you think the key mechanical properties of tendon 
are that drives some of the overuse pathology we see. Do you think it's the type of loading that's put on a tendon that is the most destructive? As an engineer, I think about tendon as an engineering material, um, which of course it is in a, in a simplified way. It's like a biofiber composite. So it's like the sort of glass reinforced plastic, the GRP, having a dinghy boat hull. Um, and composites are, are really tough materials. So that means that you can load them and load them again and put a lot of energy into them before they actually break. So they're tough because rather than breaking instantly, catastrophically all the way through, they, they accumulate what, what we call an engineering damage or, or micro damage. And those are small cracks or broken fibers or what have you. Um, and if you if you damage your dinghy hull, that looks kind of crazed and white. I don't know if the, um, if you're a sailor, Jill, but that if you bump into something, then 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 the, as well as the kind of physical change of shape, then the the area around it changes its appearance. That that allows the process of failure to take a lot of time. So you need to repeat loading the composite, and eventually all those small cracks and the small broken fibers will join up, and eventually the material will fail catastrophically. But it takes a long time. But but this kind of micro damage is a fact of life. It's something that happens every time you load a composite material. So the remarkable thing about tendon is that given it's a composite and it's likely that you damage it very slightly, even if loaded a small amount, um, it's that the material is able to withstand repeated, really enormous loads in the case of the Achilles um, throughout life. Um, and that catastrophic failure is quite rare. Um, but that, of course, means that there's something else going on than it simply being an engineering material. So there, of course, there are tendon cells. It's a living tissue. And they must be active in repairing this tiny amount of damage that happens all the time. So that if, if the amount of damage accumulates so that the cells aren't keeping up for whatever reason, maybe they're in elderly tissue or perhaps there's some disease process which is affecting the cell response to damage, then the, the damage can accumulate and then potentially there's a cellular response which might be causing tendinopathy and potentially there's a rupture as well. And that's sort of supported by some really nice mechanical testing done some time ago by Robert Kerr, who showed that if you repeatedly load dead tendons, so ex vivo from animals, so there has no repair process possible. You look at um, tendons from different anatomical sites which are loaded in life with different magnitudes of load. But if you load them in, in the lab at the same level that they experience in everyday life, then the number of cycles they can withstand is roughly constant across tendons from all the different anatomical sites. So that sort of points to the idea that tendons are designed or adapted to the purpose of resistance to repetitive loading. So I think although repetitive loading is, is potentially one of the causes of tendinopathy, it's, it's going to be a very subtle difference between repetitive loading that is damaging and repetitive loading that is not. So in order to, to get a really clear picture of, of the underlying basic science, we need to know about the micro damage itself um, and how the cells attempt to, to start repairing it. And that's something that we're actively engaged in at the present. Thank you. I've always wanted to know the answer to this question and the literature seems to be all over the place. Is, is tendinopathy stiffer than normal tendons? And if so, why? <laughs> um, so I wonder, if could, could you just clarify where you see the, the greatest discrepancies and which, which tendons... Well, most of the literature, as best I can work out, is in the Achilles because it's pretty much the only place you can measure stiffness in vivo. Uh, and there seems to be differences between tendinopathic tendons and normal tendons. 
but the ranges that you see in one study appear to be very different from the ranges of stiffness that you see in other studies. Sure, it's just in, in terms of the scatter of in vivo measurement of tendon stiffness and tendon material property, there's a really big scatter. So um, my first thought is that the uncertainty inherent in the measurement process is, is very high still. And so we need, in order to, to draw a, a strong conclusion about changes due to tendinopathy, and tendons, we need to have a much more sensitive way of, of, of making this measurement. Um, and also, um, I guess, to as an engineer, to point out the difference between stiffness, which is a property of the whole tendon, and the modulus, which is a property of the material. So if the tendon, as it does in tendinopathy, if it increases its cross-sectional area, but the material stays the same, then the whole tendon will become stiffer. But that doesn't mean that the material has changed. Um, and it is possible that the cross-sectional area of the tendon has increased a lot um, and that the material property has decreased a little and then that still produces a tendon whose stiffness has actually increased. There's are two parts to my answer that, that it's, it's difficult to measure in the clinic um, and there are high uncertainties and that secondly, that the stiffness is a different thing from the material property and sometimes those things are not separated. Yeah, which is probably what we see in tendinopathy, where we see an increase in size, but perhaps a, a weakening of the actual material properties within the tendon. Yeah. Can you tell me what your work is at the moment and how you, excited you are by it? There are a number of different areas we're working in, but I thought I'd tell you a bit about the, um, leading on from my answer previously, some work that we're doing on an ultrasound elastography technique. Um, so, of course, ultrasound is widely used to image tendons, um, and, and the papers that you refer to have used ultrasound uh, to measure the, the change in the length of, of, the, of an Achilles tendon under load and then enable an estimate of the stiffness of the tendon. Um, and we're taking that a step further by using a, a technique called um, elastography, which um, performs an, a mathematical correlation between adjacent frames in a beam mode ultrasound movie and enables an estimate of the displacement that's taken place, the displacement field across the whole tendon. So that means that we can calculate a strain map for the tendon. And the difference from of our elastography technique from the commercially available ones is that in that modality, uh, the ultrasound probe is pushed into the body. The pressure that you apply to the tissue in the body is in the same direction as the propagation of the ultrasound. Um, so it's really good for detecting things like breast cancer lumps, which um, you would expect to be uh, have a different property in, in that particular direction. But tendons, of course, are not. we're not interested in their property axial to the ultrasound. The ultrasound is going into the body and coming back out again. We, we want to know what the property of the tendons is perpendicular to that direction because that's the main direction in which they're loaded. We can measure the longitudinal strain in the tendon and couple that to external measurements of the load in the tendon and therefore produce a, a map of the stiffness in that particular Achilles tendon. So we've got some validation in the lab um, and we've had a substantial clinical experience with 20 patients uh, with monthly ultrasound exams over six months following Achilles tendon rupture. So obviously that's quite an, an easy target to begin with because the, the mechanical changes involved in healing are rather larger and easier to t detect than the smaller changes you might expect in tendinopathy. 
That sounds excellent. Tell me, just in terms of elastography, is the force that you put on the transducer a factor in the response that you get, and how do you control that? Sure. So in the in the commercial systems that are available, you're right. The force that you apply to the transducer is a factor, and it will influence the particular property that you measure, which is why commercial elastography is a qualitative tool. It doesn't actually... It's not capable of being quantitative because it's very difficult to measure the amount of force that you're applying to the structure that you're imaging. The way that we're using uh, ultrasound to measure the displacements perpendicular to the ultrasound beam propagation and the fact that, in fact, we're not applying a pressure with the probe, what we're doing is applying a, a passive um, dorsiflexion to the ankle um, and following the movement of the Achilles subsequent to that. So we're not using the probe at all, and we're able to measure the force that we apply uh, to the foot and to estimate the amount of force, therefore, that the Achilles is carrying. It's a little bit different from the from the current commercially available technique, which is very variable and user-dependent. So in terms of applying your findings to clinical practice, do we have to wait until we have ultrasound that can use elastography in the way that you are you are or do you think there's some clinical implications from your work what we developed is a is a bit of software so and it runs on pretty much the rf signal from pretty much any b mode ultrasound scanner obviously the the resolution of the scanner um the higher the better um in terms of the accuracy that we can achieve but it it could work on any scanner to which we can plug in and and, and read off the rf signal in terms of its Using in the clinic, of course, the even though we have this experience in tendon rupture patients, we haven't shown yet that the changes we see are related to any clinical outcome measure that might be interesting, such as the re-rupture rate. And obviously, that would be a, a nice step to make, and it would enable the ultrasound elastography to be used as a predictive way, enabling better judgments for the timing of, for example, of cast removal in a rupture patient or the intensity of rehabilitation. So I think uh, in terms of, of, of rupture, we can we can move quite quickly. There's still a lot of work we need to do on exactly how big changes might be in tendinopathy um, and the sensitivity of the technique before we can start thinking about an application for, for tendinopathy. Thanks, Mark. How do you see the 2014 conference panning out? The conference has an emphasis on uh, therapeutics and translational science as well as bringing clinical uh, practice in to, to mix with those. And Andy Carr and Philippa Hulley and I are committed to planning uh, a conference where the interaction between clinicians and basic scientists is not only encouraged but more or less unavoidable. Um, and we're going to include mixing clinical and basic science together in streams um, and also sessions that integrate the latest translational science with discussion of questions that face clinicians treating patients every day. So we, we intend that this will be a conference particularly useful for discussions on interventional decision-making and uh, to uh, generate a consensus on specific outcome scores across clinical and translational disciplines. So I, I just uh, acknowledge my co-organisers there, Andy Carr and Philip Ali. Mark, I could actually talk to you all night, but I'm <laughs> thanking you for your time now. The 2014 International Scientific Tendon Conference should be great and I encourage all tendonophiles listening to this to come. Mark, thank you. I'm sure your group will be well represented at the conference, seeing it's in Oxford, and I look forward to seeing you all listeners there at the conference as well. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Jill. 
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.